him. We read here in this passage that Stephen, last week we read that he was one of the men who was appointed to, uh, to help lead the church, really, uh, as, the, as the Jewish apostles, the Hebrew Jews, were Hebrew-speaking Jews, were delegating their leadership to, to qualified people to not just wait tables and serve food to widows, but to shepherd the church. And they selected these men who were Gentiles, uh, not, sorry, not who were Gentiles, but who were Greek-speaking Jews. And what that meant was, as the Jews had been dispersed throughout the, the, the ancient world, um, in this whole huge area, uh, that there were some who didn't even speak Hebrew, but they still were Jewish. And of course, the Hebrew-speaking Jews looked down on them and, well, eh, you guys didn't quite do as good of a job as we did at staying separate from the rest of the world. You changed the way that you talk and other things. But these Greek-speaking Jews were a part of the church. And so the apostles appointed leaders like Stephen to lead them, to represent them. And it's the beginning. uh, uh, Commentators call it the the tip of the wedge, basically. uh, it, It is the way that the early church is able to sort of force itself in to the entire Roman Empire is with this man, Stephen, who is a Jewish person, a follower of Jesus, but a Greek-speaking one. A man who's able to speak a language of the rest of this part of the world and therefore get the message out even more. And so he does that very thing. And some men call him on it and they report him to the elders We read this in verse 11, as these men who are angered by what Stephen is saying, uh, try to get him in trouble. They want him to stop talking. We read in verse 11 through 13, then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy places and the law. You see, uh, these men um, knew exactly what to do. They said, if we go to the Jewish council, and if we tell them that he's saying these specific things, things they knew he wasn't saying, and if we get other people to lie and pretend to be witnesses and say they heard him say these things and they saw him say these things, those guys are going to freak out and they're probably going to kill him. They're definitely going to get rid of him. You see, the, the Greek-speaking Jews uh, use the same Jewish council to their advantage, manipulate it to get this guy booted out of, of, of their group of people. They knew exactly what to say. They knew exactly who to lie to and what to lie about. And they played this counsel totally to their ends. Uh, And there's two things that you see about Stephen that make this such a painful story for us as believers. The first is that it seems really clear that the more faithful Stephen was in his following God, in his preaching the gospel, in his Uh, out of love, trying to bring 
um, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters to know Jesus, that the more faithful that Stephen was, the more that his own people called him faithless. I mean, think about that, right? Like, like he, he's literally the definition of a faithful follower of God in what he's saying and what he's doing and ultimately giving his life for it. But what do they do? They call him a heretic. They call him someone who's got it wrong. They say, not this guy is coming to help us. They say, this guy is coming to tear us down. The more faithful that he was, the more they called him faithless. In fact, the only way that they could ultimately accuse Stephen was to misrepresent him. Now, that word is not a very exciting word, misrepresent, right? I tried to find a more exciting one. But there is no better word to describe exactly what's happening here. They represent him wrong. They, they say, this guy, Stephen, is doing all these things, and none of them are things that he's doing. You see, it's not that these men misunderstood what he was saying. It wasn't that, you know, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and passions got kind of fired up and, you know, people had bad communication or things got literally lost in translation. No, they knew exactly what he was saying and it made them so angry. They said, we're going to go lie about what he's saying. We're going to go tell the Jewish council that this guy is saying totally different things. And ultimately, I think the root of all the persecution that people deal with in the church comes from this simple idea, this idea of a misrepresentation. The, the root of persecution comes not from misunderstanding, but it comes from misrepresenting what a person's about. What's being said of you is not true. Ever felt that way? Uh, whether it's happening on purpose because people know it's not true or they just don't really understand. They don't really understand what it is that this faith is about, that this person's talking about. And so they, they get it wrong and they misrepresent what it is. See, it's one thing to be looked down on and to even suffer for what you believe or for how you live it out to say, you know, man, I, I think that that would be really hard, but I could probably handle that, handle being looked down on. You, maybe you've been looked down on. You've suffered. You, you've been in some way persecuted for what you believe, and you go, you know what? It's tough, but, but I can deal with it. I can handle it. That I can take. It's another thing entirely to be looked down on or to suffer the very same thing because of something that's not even true. That's, I don't think that we can handle very well, right? It's one thing uh, to think, uh, you know, they're, mis they're not getting it, it's confusing, lost in translation. It's another thing entirely to be like, I know for a fact that the way I'm being seen, the way I'm being treated, the way that I'm, I'm being dealt with, that, that, that it's because of something that's not even true of me. We have a remarkably low tolerance for situations where we feel like we're being misunderstood. We do. We have a really low tolerance for situations when we feel misrepresented or slandered. 
And because of that, the way that we respond is with anger, is with resentment, it's with feeling sorry for ourselves. You see, Stephen is in this situation where now he has to defend himself against these guys and all the accusations against him are false, right? So, so uh, ultimately, like, how do you handle a situation like that, right? You, you stop what you're doing, you stop all this proselytizing stuff that he's doing, and you stop and you say, first of all, guys, let's set the record straight here, okay? What they're saying about me is a lie. What people are saying about me is a lie, okay? I can, there's some things that I can take, but what I can't take is I can't take people just outright misunderstanding or lying about me on purpose, getting these things wrong, that I cannot handle. The reason that I say that we have a remarkably low tolerance for being misrepresented to other people is because we see it happen all the time in the world, right? We, we, we go, uh, we, we have people in our lives who like, who disagree with us and who judge us, who look down upon us, and we know for a fact that it's because of things that aren't even true, right? We know the things that people think about Christians or about our culture even, or about our family or about our friends or about us. Things that people think are, that are just absolutely not even true, right? For whatever reason that they think them. And it drives us crazy. It drives us crazy that people are just not seeing it the way that it is. They're not confused. It's not a misunderstanding. They just refuse to see the way things really are. We absolutely can't stand being misrepresented. We really can't. We can't stand it when we know that that's happening. And because of that, we respond not with patience or grace or any of the things that Stephen did here when he gives his sermon. Instead, we respond with resentment. We respond with anger. We respond with feeling sorry, not for them because they're wrong, but for ourselves, right? Like, I'd feel sorry for you if you were just confused, but you're not, you're lying, or you're, you're, you're letting yourself be deceived, and so I feel sorry for myself. And so we get so full of resentment and anger and self-pity that that ends up being all that we can really do is just feel those things. The last thing that we can do is actually respond to these people in any kind of a, like a good way, a constructive way. Stephen instead chooses to do something that is incredible here. Stephen instead chooses to defend the gospel, to defend Jesus in a situation where everybody else would stop and simply defend themselves. I mean, self-defense is one of the most understandable things that there is. There, I don't know what else is more understandable than that, right? I mean, even turn the other cheek when Jesus says it. It's like we have a million ways of explaining that away because the idea of self-defense is so hardwired into us. This idea that if someone intentionally wrongs you, harms you, slanders you, m- maligns you, lies about you, steps on you, then you absolutely at the very least, have a right to defend yourself, right? But Stephen doesn't defend himself. He ends up defending Jesus instead. And this is important because the truth is, as hard as it is for us to believe this, um, you can usually only do one or the other. You can usually only defend yourself 
or you can defend Jesus. But most of the time, you can't actually do both. Now, now we would love to believe that you can do both, right? We would love to believe that the way it works to be able to defend Christ. And what I mean when I say defend Christ is the way Stephen does it, right? His way of defending Jesus is saying, I want you to know about Jesus. That's what he does. That's, this guy's all about you knowing about Jesus Christ, knowing that life is found in him, knowing even if you think you're close to God and you come from a, a long line of people who totally understand God in every way, to him, defending Jesus in the gospel simply means convincing you of who God really is and what it really means to be one of his people. That's what Stephen is completely all about doing. That's what it means to defend Jesus. And what Stephen knows is he knows I can either defend Jesus to these people or I can defend myself, but I, but I can't do both. And we don't usually believe that. We, we, I think we kind of live in a fantasy world where we think like, no, 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 you could probably do both, right? You just have to be really good at it in most situations. It's like you're, like, I keep thinking of these examples all week when I think about this. It's like so many of them, examples of like situations where, um, you know, you think that you can do kind of two things simultaneously, but really you, you only can do the one, right? It's like, it's like, you're, it's like you're given a job to do and, and you know, you know, you're outside maybe and you're doing this job and, and, and it's hard work, but, but you're doing it because it's a job and you want to do your job and, 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 and you go, see, I can, I can do this. And then, and then you, uh, you, you, you go, oh, it hurts, you know, it's making me tired, but you know what? I'm willing to, to do this work because it's more important to me maybe even than myself, right? My own comfort, right? My own happiness. And then let's just say you start to get attacked by bugs. Then what do you do? You start to get attacked by bugs. Maybe you're out and there's mosquitoes or maybe it's murder hornets or whatever and they start attacking you. Well, now you have a choice to make, right? Either I keep working, I keep doing what I'm doing, I keep moving the thing I'm moving, uh, and, I, and if I do that, then there's no way that I'm gonna stop these bugs from attacking me. So now I have to choose, I have to choose. Am I gonna run away, stop the work? Am I gonna defend myself, or am I gonna keep working? Am I gonna say, well, it was hard before, but now it's even harder, because now, uh, the only way that I can keep doing this is to, is to be harmed, right? Uh, of course, the better example, I know you're probably thinking it, I am, is, is Gus, the, uh, the fat mouse in Cinderella, right? Who uh, finds a pile of corn kernels and starts stacking them up in his hands and gets them just perfectly up to his chin and is barely holding them and very carefully walking away. He's so excited, he's got all these corn kernels and then he bumps into a big cat. And Gus has to decide, a very painful decision, uh, either I can uh, carry these corn kernels or I can run from this cat. But unfortunately, I just can't do both. Uh, unfortunately, he has to drop all the kernels and run from the cat, which I think is the wiser choice. He is being called in front of all these people and literally all Stephen would have to do is just go, okay, hang on a second, let's just, okay. Okay, I'm just gonna stop this preaching thing. I'm gonna stop this gospel thing. Okay, let's set the record straight here. I didn't say this, I didn't say this, I didn't say this. Those guys are liars, those guys are liars, those guys are liars. The end, right? Or all Stephen really has to do is this. 
Now, it's true that being silent is very hard for preachers, but all he had to do was, like, not say anything about Jesus anymore. I mean, if he had stopped talking, the likelihood that they would have just been like, all right, eh, whatever, it looks like he's learned his lesson. That's it, it's over, right? I mean, it would have been so easy for him to just say, listen, I mean, obviously I'm really good at this. I'm getting some kind of reaction. Obviously God wants me to be around a little longer. So I'm just going to take that as a hint that I need to just maybe stop talking and think about my own self-preservation for a little while. You know, for the sake of the gospel, right? It would be so easy for Stephen to at any point stop and just defend himself, just protect himself, just like at least set the record straight and say, you're wrong about me. And then once everything's cleared up and straightened out and everything's fine, he can start to go on and tell everybody once again about God and how terrible, you know, they need to repent and everything like that. But the truth is, and Stephen knows this, is that people usually are only able to hear one thing at a time. He knows that he's only going to be able to get one defense out. And if he defends himself, he loses his opportunity to tell these people, these Jewish leaders, about, about Christ and about how much they need him and to warn them and to say, you are about to make the same mistake that your fathers have over so many generations made. If you spend your time telling people that they're wrong about you, then your time's up. And you usually aren't going to get a chance to tell people that they might be wrong about Jesus. If you spend your time correcting all the inaccuracies, all the misunderstandings, all the misconceptions, all the misrepresentations, you run out of time. And as much as we would love to believe that we can do both, the truth is that this is the first example of so many, of a martyr, someone who went to the extreme in the early church of saying, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to keep telling people about Jesus. What does that have anything to do with our own lives? It couldn't be simpler. Everything in us wants to defend ourselves. Everything in us wants to explain to people how we're right, explain to people how they don't understand, explain to people, especially when we know for an absolute certainty that they've got us pegged wrong. But the truth is that people usually are only going to hear one thing from us at a time. You think about everything that is going on in the world right now. There are a lot of things going on in the world that are hard. We have issues having to do with public health, issues having to do with governance, issues having to do with race, issues having to do with tolerance and being willing to listen to and talk with people that are very different from us at almost every turn. There are so many things to, uh, to have to have some kind of a position on. The truth is that with all of those things, still the most important thing is the ability to be able to proclaim Jesus. If anything that we say or that we do ultimately 
is alienating people in such a way that they will not be able to hear from us about Jesus, then we have, in a sense, failed in the connection we have with that person. Listen, we're, the Christians in the world, we are not called to be the people that are going around trying to convince everybody of everything and uh, of following Jesus. We are first and foremost called with a very simple mission, and it is this. You are called to bring the light of Jesus to the world. And that means explaining him, defending him, making his case, putting his name before your own or any other cause that you think of. And no, that is not an excuse for apathy. That doesn't mean be apathetic towards everything. But people will constantly look to the New Testament church and say, why didn't they address all of these other things that were currently happening in the lives of these people? And it wasn't because they didn't care about them. And it probably wasn't because they didn't talk about them amongst one another constantly. It was because the message that they were called to give, the most important message of all, was that of Jesus. And everything that they did was to build bridges to other people so they could bring that message. There is tremendous freedom in accepting that you don't have control over how other people perceive you sometimes. That's a life lesson. That's a lesson that I wish my kids could learn without having to fall in that hole. But sadly, they're probably going to have to fall in it a lot. They're going to have to see through experience that no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard they track down a, a rumor or a word or, or something that's misunderstood, no matter how hard they try, that, that there's actual freedom in just accepting. I can't control it. P, uh, Stephen moves on and he gives a sermon, a sermon that is absolutely um, packed with the Bible, right? And, and to, to break it down, to, to go through it, is, uh, it would not be an easy thing to do right now. But there's, but there's, there's two things that we see in this, in this sermon that he gives. There's these, there's these two main things that he's kind of trying to say to these guys. And, and they're pretty simple. And they're pretty simple to pull out and to see. The first, and it, you know, you could, you could kind of say that it, it relates a little bit to, I think, where we're at in life right now. The first thing that he says in, in these accounts, is, as Stephen is, is, is recounting for these, these uh, Hellenist Jews, uh, or these non-Hellenist Jews. I mean, I mean, so Stephen's the guy who, you know, he's the Greek-speaking Jew. He comes before the council. They go, great, we got one of these Greek-speaking Jews. He's not even a real Jewish person. He doesn't even speak Hebrew, right? What does this guy know? What does this guy care? Of course he wants the temple torn down. Of course he wants us to stop doing the things that we're doing, right? Because this guy doesn't even know what it is that we're about. He's so far from being like a pure Jewish person. It's not even funny. Stephen comes and he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he shares this sermon with them and, and he walks through the patriarchs of their faith, people like Moses and Joseph, people like Abraham, uh, the, these men who, like, like, like David, these men who have, and Solomon, who, have, who, have, who are the forefathers of their faith, 
showing them, first of all, I know plenty about our faith and about Scripture and about the Law and the Prophets, but also pointing out to them a certain thing that is, that is common in every one of these accounts. And the first thing that he points out to them is this. Uh, he says it again and again and again in all the stories that he goes through. He, he, he says, God is not going to be uh, bound by a building. He's or, or even a, a culture or a group of people specifically that he's bigger than that. Every, every one of these stories that he works through, he points out how God was present for the person, for the people, amongst his people, not because they finally made it to the promised land, not because uh, they finally built him a temple, that God was working in the life of Joseph, not because he was in the right place. He was actually always in the wrong place. He was in a pit. He was in Egypt. He was always in the wrong place. And yet, God was still there. That God was there, uh, present and active in Moses' life uh, long before Moses was ever leading people to the promised land that God promised him. That God was active in Abraham's life and his family long before he brought them into this promised land. That, that even when David and Solomon, uh, that even when Solomon would build God a temple ultimately, that, that his response, we read about it in verse, 30, verse 48 through 50. This is what Stephen says. He goes through all of these examples from the Old Testament. And then he says this. He says, yet, the, he, he talks about all these things that people have done for him, have built for him, the things they've done so they could sacrifice to him and have temples for him. And he says in verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen is saying this to show these guys a theme. And the theme is this. It is that the presence of God is not going to be restricted to any one land, any one place, or even any one group of people. And why does this matter? Because the, the, the word of God is about to go out to the world of the Gentiles. It's about to go out beyond the Jewish people. And they need to understand that being God's chosen people doesn't mean you're the only people. It means that he chose you for a purpose, but it doesn't mean everybody else you know, is not the chosen people, which means they're not people whose hearts in which he cannot dwell. Did I say that right? People in his hearts he cannot, I don't know. You know what I'm saying. They accused uh, Stephen of speaking against the temple. Uh, they said, you're... They said, obviously the guy who isn't from Jerusalem, who doesn't speak Hebrew, doesn't think the temple's a big deal, right? This is like the, this is like the person who maybe just becomes a Christian and then they come into the church and they're like, oh, who needs a church, right? Who needs the church, right? The church is just a building. The church is just a thing, right? You go, well, of course they say that, right? Because they've never been here. They didn't grow up in it. They didn't see the value of it, right? Of course this person would speak out against that thing. And that's what they think about him. I think, of course, uh, you know, he doesn't even care about this stuff. He doesn't even understand how important the temple is. I've heard that phrase a lot lately, by the way. You know, the church is not a building. I mean, I mean, this is like a time that everyone's been saying it. The church is not just a building, right? Which is true. Um, but um, I think that it's also 
kind of misunderstood when people say that because, uh, yeah, the church is not a building, but that's kind of like saying a family is not a house, right? And while a family is not a house, in case you were ever confused, a family is not a house, uh, it sure is nice as a family to have a house, right? Um, yes, it is. It's a very nice thing to have a house, especially when it's raining and there's thunder in the middle of the night and everybody's scared, right? Uh, it sure is a nice thing to have a house as a family, right? In the same way, it's a very nice thing to have a building as a church, a gathering of people in relationship. You see, these people had made their God, these Jewish people had made their God into a Jewish God a God who lives in Jerusalem and nowhere else. But he's bigger than that place. He's bigger than that culture. He's bigger than that language. God is no more present at the Vatican on Easter Sunday than he is in an underground uh, house church in China or then he is in a worship center in America, or then he is in the middle of a gym in a suburban elementary school in some church plant. Or then, then God is present in a small group right in your home, or he's no less, you know, more present there in the Vatican or there in a temple or there uh, in, in a house church. Uh, he's no more present in those places than he is right there, in your, right here with you in your living room or wherever you're watching this right now. Stephen's saying that's the way that God works. He, he lives in the heart of his people and, and, and these things, these temples and these places where he, he says that his people build so that he can dwell, these are not places that are built for him as much as these are places that are actually built for the people. So that, so that God's presence could dwell there, so that his people could know that God would be present with them in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but God didn't need those places in order to be. And if there was ever a time that this is good news, it would be now, right? <laughs> Why does this matter now? Because here we face the question, right? The big question, can we even worship now in our building? Can we even come together here in the church building and worship? It's good news to know that God doesn't need this church building in order to exist, that God can be present and exist with us without being able to physically enter into a church. And the truth is, actually, when you look at the history of the church, um, it's, it's, it's kind of surprising. But for one, it's, it's not as though the people with the best buildings and the best temples, or even the people with the greatest freedoms to worship, end up being the most mature, the most devout, the most willing to die to themselves, the most willing to step out in faith. Why? Because when worship is easy, we take it for granted. Most people are surprised to know, you know, when we did a, we did a series a little while ago called uh, uh, Why We Love the Church. And in that series, we, we kind of gave this statistic that like shocked everybody. We said that in our church, the average family in our church attends services uh, less than 40% of the Sundays in the year. Right, so, so the average family in our church attends church less than half of the Sundays of the year. And you tell people that, it's like, no, 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 no way, no, no, no. I mean, I know that's not true in my family. And you go, okay, fine, I don't know, look at it on the calendar. 
You kind of look at it, well, okay, yeah, I mean, I guess when you count in, like, that and that and that. Yeah, okay, maybe. Now, imagine if we could meet for church next Sunday. Imagine if uh, we got the green light and said, you know what, you guys can go have church completely as normal next Sunday morning. Would you be at church on Sunday? You probably would, right? We would have probably the most packed Sunday that we've had in years. Why? Because when it's easy, when it's something that there's no consequence to, we tend to take it for granted. And so this is what happens to even the Jewish people. They begin to get comfortable with the idea of their temple, of their synagogue, of their place where they worship God. And so uh, either you take it for granted and you just don't even appreciate uh, the, the significance of worshiping God in that place. Or you do the other extreme. You make it your hope. You either take it for granted and it begins to mean nothing or very little, or you make it your hope. The, the building is your hope. The, the, the way of worshiping God there is your hope. The, the freedom to do it is what your hope is in. And not the God himself. You either take it for granted or you put your hope in it. To these people, the destruction of the temple was literally the worst thing that could happen. To them, the building coming down meant God was coming down. He gave his people a temple for them that that they could have a place to approach him and worship him and offer sacrifices, but they begin to think that it's for him, that he's the one who needs it. Is the church building here for you and for me? Or is the church building here for God? God says, I don't need that building in order to be present in your life. So it must be for us, which is fine. And, and don't get me wrong, and I want to be really clear on this. We are incredibly fortunate and blessed to have a building to worship in, to have, live in a country where we have the freedom to be able to worship without persecution. I mean, even now, we, as, as people are frustrated at not having the, the freedom to be able to worship right now, there's no persecution for that. And we are grateful for it, but we make a grave error when we let ourselves believe that God needs this place, that God needs those freedoms in order to do even a single thing that God intends to do. He doesn't need it. The Jews believed that God needed the temple, but he didn't. And Stephen's sermon to them was first meant to point out to them that throughout history, God didn't need the place. It wasn't about the place. They were really obsessed with the place, not just the temple, but with Jerusalem. And not just with Jerusalem, but with the group of people that God had chosen. And they needed to understand that God grows outside of those things. The other thing that he does in this sermon is that he warns them. And he's really blunt and he's pretty brutal. He says this to them. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. His accusation to these Jewish leaders is really blunt and really vivid. He says, you are stiff-necked, and he says, you have uncircumcised hearts. So the uncircumcised heart part is a little easier to understand because circumcision is the physical cutting of yourself in order to show that you're one of God's people. Well, the physical cutting doesn't matter if you haven't actually circumcised your heart. What does that mean? He's saying if you haven't actually cut away the parts of your heart, your inner being, your inner self, you haven't cut that away, the parts that are not supposed to be there, And it doesn't matter how much you mutilate your skin and your flesh, because that's all it is if you don't actually change your hearts. But then he says, you are a stiff-necked people. Now, this phrase, being stiff-necked, this is an agriculture thing. This is about an animal, right? Uh, An animal that is stiff-necked is one that has a yoke on its neck that that is used to steer and guide the animal. And and, and yet, when the the person tries to, to pull the reins or pull on the yoke or steer it, the animal's neck stiffens up and they refuse to go. He says, you are like that animal. And God uses this phrase a lot in the Bible. God says constantly, my people are a stiff-necked people, right? And, and I love this illustration of this, this phrase because it says so much, right? The, these people are constantly rejecting God's guiding hand. And so he uses this phrase, phrase to describe them. He's, he's, he says, I'm trying to lead you somewhere. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work with you here. I'm trying to get some work done with you, but you just won't let me right? You go, oh my gosh, how could they be so stiff-necked, right? How could they, how could they just let God, like not listen to God, not do what God says to do? There's a, there's a meme on the internet um, of, a, of a clip from the show The Office, and man, I love it because it is, it's hilarious, and it like perfectly sums this thing up, and, and, and when, I, when I read this, you're going to be like, uh, yeah, I think I I think I felt that way before. I know someone has felt that way before. It's, it's, it's Ryan the intern, and uh, they're, they're looking for a new boss for the office, and this is what he says about what he wants in a new boss. I got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me at all. So I want guidance. I want leadership. But don't just, like, boss me around, you know? Like, lead me. Lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. Oh, this is so funny because this is exactly, I mean, this is exactly uh, the struggle that we all have, right? With being led, with being led by, by anyone that's trying to take us somewhere or that's trying to work and is depending upon us, right? As we go, no, I want you to lead me. I want you there for me, but you know, just when I want to be led, right? Not, not, not like all the time. Don't, 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 you know, push it on me. Don't demand it of me, right? You, you know, a good, a good leader, right? A good leader doesn't need to do that, right? They probably won't even need to pull the reins of the people. They probably won't even need to guide the people because a good leader, a good God wouldn't even need to do that, right? They would just, you know, it would just happen, 
You think about this image of an animal that has a stiff neck, right? Okay, so, so think about this for a second. If an animal, let's say you're a farmer and you depend on this animal, right? What does that mean, right? That means that you, that you house this animal. You provide it shelter and food. You care for it. You clean up after it. You, you, you give it water and you give it a place to sleep. You help it when it's sick and you give it rest when it needs it, right? You care for that animal. Why? So that that animal can do the work that you're leading it to do. So what happens if you go to steer and tell it to work and it doesn't work? What does that mean? That means that you uh, have done all of these things for this animal and it hasn't done anything for you. And what does that mean? That means that, that you're now the servant of them, right? It's, it's like, wait a second, I'm the one doing all the work here. You're not doing anything for me, right? This is exactly the relationship the Jewish people had with God again and again and again. He did everything to care for these people and then when he wanted to lead them in the way that he was going, they would fight it every time. It's like, well, well, you're not even being my people then. I mean, I mean, why am I giving you shelter and caring for you and protecting for you and all these different things when the time comes, when the rubber meets the road, you won't even go where I'm steering you. I mean, this is so common, right? This, this unwillingness to be led by God, this unwillingness to be, to be teachable, right? To be steered, because that's ultimately what he's telling these, these men. He's saying, he's saying, you guys have got to turn, finally. You're, you're, you're heading straight into death and destruction. You've got to see where God's leading, and you guys have got to turn in the right direction. But they just won't do it. There's a quote in Matthew, uh, a verse in Ma- some verses in Matthew 23, where Jesus is giving what he calls his woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says this, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jesus said to these guys, he said, you guys honor all these prophets? And you're like, oh my gosh, we would never do what our ancestors did. We would have totally listened to those guys. We would have totally paid attention. Oh man, they were so stupid. Jesus is like, no, you wouldn't. Because I'm right here and I'm talking to you and you're not paying any attention to me. And Stephen says the exact same thing. Stephen says, you guys are doing the exact same things that your fathers did. Was there not a single prophet that came that they didn't speak out against? Why is he saying this? What does this have anything to do with our lives now? Because we, we believe so quickly that it's so easy for us to simply not repeat the mistakes, we would say, the sins of our fathers, right? We look at the generations that come before us and we say, oh, I won't do that. I'm not going to do what they did. I'll never be guilty of that thing. I'll never get pulled into that. I'll never fall for that, right? We say that from even the youngest age. We say, I don't have to go through what they did in order to know not to do what they did. But the truth is, most of the time we do. Most of the time, generation after generation, rather than learn, we simply fall in the same holes again and again. Stephen is saying to these Pharisees, he's saying to this council, he's saying to them, 
You are a stiff-necked people because you just can't learn from the people that have come before you. We have the incredibly huge, 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 huge benefit of, of this that we can look into, that we can read, that we can, that we can sort of open ourselves up to and we can say, can I learn from this? Can I be taught by this? Can it divide me as bone from marrow, uh, like this sharp two-edged sword? Is how the scripture speaks of itself. Or do I think that other people who are younger and more foolish, who are more immature, or maybe people who are older, maybe people who are from a different culture, maybe people who haven't learned the things I have or didn't grow up in all of this or something, maybe I think they need this so badly, but, you know, I don't need to be changed by this thing, Right? Or, or we read about things in here and we just go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that they would ever do that, right? What Stephen is saying to the Pharisees is this, and it's really simple. He's saying, listen, the point when God comes and he's speaking to you, that's probably gonna be a hard time to listen. Because being teachable isn't easy. This is about being teachable. This is about the willingness to say that when God shows up and speaks truth into our lives, that it's probably going to be hard to hear and receive, and we're probably going to be tempted to flex our neck and to not turn. That is the moment. That is the moment when everything matters. What do we do in that moment? That is what matters. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is, you know, a, a demon writing to another demon, giving it advice on how to tempt a human being to sin. There you go. Just think about that premise for a while. This demon is writing and he's giving advice on how to tempt this person to sin. And, and he's, he's giving him advice on how to interfere in the process of like, a, of like a father giving advice to their son, basically learning from something. And here's what he says. He says, um, he says, and since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. See, what Lewis is saying here is he's saying that one generation can actually avoid error by learning from the truths of another. And he's saying that if the enemy wants to stop that from happening, all he has to do is separate out the different generations because then you can't learn from each other. I mean, I mean, this is ultimately, God's word is ultimately a record of the interactions, the relationship between God. It is the, uh, scholars will often describe it as the, the redemptive history of God and man. Right? It is the history of God redeeming men and bringing us to him, drawing us to him. But this is the stories of our ancestors, right? And so if we're smart, if we're wise, we will look at God's word and we'll say, this is like the yoke. This is the thing that steers me, right? Can I learn from this so that I don't have to make the same mistakes that the people here did? That's ultimately what Stephen is saying to the Pharisees. 
He's saying, guys, learn from your elders, right? Learn from those that came before you. That's what Jesus said to the other Pharisees. He said, you guys talk about these prophets like they're so great, you would have killed them yourselves. This is an incredible account, an incredible uh, story of a man's ministry, however short it may have been, that it seems is bookended by this idea of, you know, people thinking something about you and just couldn't be, you know, like, what do you do with that? The incredible thing to me about Stephen is that he, in the end, didn't care what people thought of him. He cared what they thought of Christ. That ultimately, in the end, we are to be more concerned with how people see Jesus and because we're more concerned with how they see Jesus, we are willing to look inward at ourselves and say, is there anything about myself that might be getting in the way of how people can see Jesus? And if so, I want that thing to change. 